Hello and welcome to another edition of the Leaders Sport Performance Podcast. My name is James Emmett, I am the editor at large here at Leaders and with me, my fantastic great good colleague, it's Mr Matthew Stone from the Leaders Performance Institute. Hello Matthew. Hello James. Matthew, um, let's keep this very brief. You have just come off the back of a fantastic three days of uh, conferencing here at Twickenham Stadium, the home of English rugby, the home of the Leaders uh, Performance Institute's flagship London event uh, now. Um, I know you've been with um, Luke, uh, your colleague, our colleague from the Leaders Performance Institute, and Michael Colfield, who hosted uh, the conference over the last two days just now, talking um, talking points. Uh, but um, before you give your very top line uh, summary of what has gone down here, I just wanted to tee up this podcast. Um, we should be running for more or less an hour. Um, and we'll hear from the people uh, involved in putting on the conference. Um, and then we will go into... Um, three interviews that I did across the event. Uh, the first one will be with Sean Deitch and Emma Hayes, the Burnley and Chelsea uh, managers respectively, talking communication, how to interact with millennials and opening up for documentaries, which um, Emma has done at the Chelsea women's team. Uh, then we'll hear from Google's Kirk Vallis, um, a creativity expert on building create creativity in individuals and in teams and in systems. And finally, we will hear from Claire Muirin Murphy, um, who is a professional storyteller, uh, a world-leading storyteller, and she um, opens up on the power of storytelling, how to do it well, and why it's so important. But Matthew, uh, what, are your, what are your top-line thoughts of this Leaders Performance Summit? I mean, Claire's got the best job title in the world for professional storyteller, um, mm -hmm. that, that's for sure. No, brilliant few days. Um, kicked off on Monday with various think tanks, focus groups, roundtables uh, for our members and for key people on our network. Um, brilliant to get people in early, give them the opportunity to speak to one another. Um, it's not all about listening from speakers, it's about giving those good people in the audience the opportunity to speak to one another. Um, we had a real diverse speaker lineup, as we always try to do. Um, from Red Bull to the New York Giants, Harlequins, Manchester City, EIS, Google, uh, the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. Uh, we had a couple of Aussies uh, from Arsenal Women, Brisbane Lions, uh, as well as today, you know, best-selling author in, in Matthew Syed. We had an Olymp Olympics-themed panel uh, and the FA, amongst many, many others. So from, from my point of view... Um, I hope that we touched on a number of different themes, a number of different topics. I think, I think we did. Um, I hope we kept it fresh. Um, very difficult when you're doing events through the year to keep it fresh, but we introduced a couple of new things. Um, so thanks to all our speakers for, for coming and thanks to all the attendees for, for taking part, not only turning up and listening, but um, giving their role in, in being interactive in the audience and giving the thoughts. Yeah, certainly. And um, uh, it, I, I, certainly I'm always struck um, whenever I am involved in these particular conferences that we run by the level of interactivity, the level of engagement amongst the participants. And that's a credit, I think, uh, to us, I guess, as the organising team, but certainly to those participants. So thank you uh, from me to all of our members of the Leaders Performance Institute uh, and to all the other attendees today. Um, before we get on, Matthew, with your reflections with Luke and Michael Coalfield, I just want to say another thank you uh, to all of our partners, uh, particularly to our main partners, Kaiser uh, and to SAP. Um, if you're listening to this and you've not been to one of the um, Leaders Performance Summits, you've not interacted with the Leaders Performance Institute, get online. What do you know? www.leadersinsport.com. That's your portal for all the information you need. And without further ado, here is Matthew Stone talking with Luke Whitworth and Michael Colfield. Good afternoon, everyone. We are in box 3098 here at Twickenham Stadium, the home of English rugby and the home of leaders. Leaders performance summit the last few days. Uh, it's our debut here. Uh, we were here Monday, we were here all day Tuesday and we've just finished on the final day here on the Wednesday. I'm here with Luke Whitworth who has run the programme 
put together the program the last few months uh, and the last couple of days. And Michael Caulfield, our expert MC for the last couple of days and making his debut here at Twickenham as well. How are we, gents? Good, Mark. Happy it's done? I'm, no, I'm not actually. I could have, it, it was, it's actually quite sad. It was brilliant. It I'm was, happy. It was joyous. <laughs> no, you do the organising, I just do the easy <laughs> bit. But it was, it was joyous from start to finish. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about the event. Um, personally, I think it was, well, Jimmy Worrell said it was the best we've ever done. I can't say I disagree with him. But reflecting on the last couple of days, yep. Michael, I'll come to you first because you were introing all the sessions. Mm. Um, what were the kind of the key themes throughout the, the couple of days that have arisen for you? I think that despite this extraordinary data-driven world we live in and the expansion of knowledge and science, including neuroscience, the engine of the brain, it's still how we deliver the information we now possess to people, from people. So I'm more convinced than ever in a highly technical world that it still comes back to human interaction. And when you hear the world's best, they are the world's best I've met in terms of performance and data and science and innovation and neuroscience and injury tracking. When you hear them still say it's about how you deal with people as opposed to just the information you possess. Uh, and in the fast-paced, crazy, hyper-connected world we live in, Focus as much on that as you do on the information you've got. Could disagree with that. Luke, follow that up. <laughs> Pretty spot I think two things really stood out to me, even though there was quite a variety and you know, eclectic mix of, of content going on, but it was mainly around people and environment. I think those were the two things that, even though we talked around you know, innovation and data, um, you know, the, which you necessarily think would come to talk about numbers or you know, technology and things like that, it, it, it didn't. It's kept coming back to, as Michael said, people or the environment you're creating around your people or your athletes as well. So uh, really interested that maybe there's a slight trend emerging there in the industry that have we gone through a technological revolution and it's actually coming back to a human being? Maybe it is, but those are two things for me. Yeah, no, completely agree. And I think um, we always have an overarching theme of leadership and culture and environment and teamwork and talent. Um, and I think that runs through in every single session today, you know, from, from Matthew Side this morning to talking about his new book, Rebel Ideas, which Michael, I know you've read, yeah. um, all the way through to you know, the Innovation Forum this afternoon, um, you know, talking about the brain, the numbers, the team, and, and things like that. You know, I think those, two things yeah. actually came back on the agenda, which have never left my agenda, because I'm of the, agen I'm of the generation which had them on the agenda. Uh, because I grew up, because I'm, I was born in a certain, I was born in the 60s, the 1960s, I hasten to add, uh, where storytelling was part of your youth because you didn't have TV, you didn't have screens, you didn't have laptops, you didn't have anything, we didn't have a television. So you, you made your own entertainment and that was done through stories and that was brought to life by an extraordinary speaker, uh, extraordinary, and I can never quite pronounce the name properly, but it's Claire Murin Murphy. Uh, and there was, there was extraordinary experience in storytelling and, and the other one is sleep mm. because we're living through a sleep crisis because we don't sleep enough because everywhere is now very bright and very connected, very lit up and we've lost the art of proper rest and whether it was military training, whether it was mental health training, whether it was high performance sport, whether it was Google talking about creativity, you try doing anything about a good night's sleep, I wish you the best of luck. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I think, um, no, Completely right. You've mentioned some of the speakers there, and I will ask you in a minute who your, who your favourite speakers were. Um, but I think one of the, the, the things that really stuck out to me was amongst all the sessions and the speakers, we try this open spaces format on, on day one. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is there's some really brilliant people in the audience. We can't put everyone on stage, but the conversations there, the little post-it notes, the little remarks and anecdotes uh, coming from people uh, in the audience were, were brilliant. So um, a thank you to everyone there as well. Um, I will send it. Yeah, to you, Michael. I know you, it's a difficult job to pick your favourite speaker, um, or maybe easier to, to pick your favourite session, but what really stuck out for you? Um, I think sometimes in sport and performance, we get hung up on sport and performance. And I think that what took us out of that was firstly Kirk Vannis from Google talking about creativity and how the brain best works to be creative. And guess what? It's not when you're just thinking about something, staring at something and thinking, I must come up with an idea by 6pm this evening. So Kirk, on day one, got us thinking differently. He disrupts thinking. That's his job. So I think that particularly stood up. And then on the second day, it was Claire speaking about the power and the art of storytelling. Mm. She got the room telling stories, the stories she'd started with, and then tell it again. And then I backed it up with, I got a, an email last week from a sporting director saying, I want to be a storyteller, but I haven't got the confidence or ability to do it. Mm -hmm. He does, he just doesn't know it yet. 
So I think what's come back outside of the science was the uh, was creativity, which is resting and having offline thinking, and then the power of stories. Never underestimate the power of stories. And we're here at Twickenham, and on, when I arrived on Monday, you can have a tour of Twickenham and the history of Twickenham, the history of English rugby, the history of rugby without it, the wars, because horses used to graze on that pitch during the war, because there was no grass left, no space left. This connects us. And of course we need the science, of course we need the innovation, of course we need measurement, but it doesn't mean anything, it's just numbers, and we need more than numbers. Absolutely. Luke, to you. Yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad Michael said those two. I actually had a couple of different ones, and it's, it's always difficult when you ask us, probably from leaders, about our favourite session because you're working on these for weeks, months, you know, inside out. Um, but for me, I think on day one, I really enjoyed the performance design session with um, Glenn Hunter from EIS, Sam Eric from City, and also uh, Roger Nebone from, from Imperial. I think it was just one of those classic sessions we like to put together, which is two or three different fields of excellence talking about a, you know, a common theme and trying to get insight into which avenue people kind of go down with regards to it. Um, and I think Glenn's research in particular is fascinating on how the learner has evolved over the last decade and the, the importance of the um, design of the experience around them um, stood, really stood out to me. And I think today, Claire was exceptional, um, but I thought Matthew's side was brilliant this morning. Um, Diversity has cropped up a couple of times across the last two days, but the way he he kind of delivered that message, I felt was was excellent. Um, his book's fantastic. I've read it as well. Um, There's a lot for sport to learn in that space as well. So those two for me really did stand out. All right, guys, thank you very much. Sean Deitch, Emma Hayes, thank you very much for being with us and with me today. Set the scene, we've got a little bit of uh, tractor noise behind us. We're at um, Twickenham, uh, the home of rugby. You guys participating in an elite uh, performance meeting of top level performance practitioners. We call it the P8 here at Leaders. Sean, did you know that Emma has never been to a rugby game? Well, I can't, I can't top that, but I can tell you I've been to one, and it was here. Oh, it right. was England versus Scotland, in which England were miles in front. I think it was like 50 nil or something. Yeah. Um, and I joined in, had amazing seats, and I joined in shouting knock on, even though I have no clue what I'm talking <laughs> Probably about. Probably wasn't. I don't even a clue. Yeah, I have no clue what the rules are, um, despite my interest in actually what's behind rugby. Yep. I've been in Saracens and Harlequins having a look at what they do. It is very interesting, I think, rugby, rugby culture. Uh, and Emma, I'd thoroughly recommend it to you to come and have a look, see what yeah, it's all about. Yeah, enjoy watching it on TV. Um, we are three quarters of the way through the day uh, today, probably a little bit more. Um, top line question for you both. What have you taken from the day so far? How, I think the biggest thing stirring around in my mind is the as the demands grow, not just in our environments and on the players, how simple it needs to be and how good our communications or our abilities to recognise that there's quite a mundane nature to what our players have to do and perform on a regular basis that uh, I moving further and further towards human endeavour, communication and um, connecting with people mm. than I am analysing data mm -hmm. uh, among, say, one of a, a number of games there could be in the game. Mm -hmm. So breaking it down into yeah. kind of simple communication. Actually just going back to basics and recognising with dealing with the generation of players uh, so it's, we, we easily we, we palm off this conversation around the millennial generation. Yeah. The realities are they communicate significantly better than we give them credit for. They just do it differently. Yeah. So perhaps we need to adapt. Yeah. And you, I actually I was taking notes during a sort of breakout session earlier, and you were talking about maybe it's this year or a new thing that you're doing this year at half time. Yeah. You're trying to give the players a lot more ownership and you're basically asking them questions, giving them choices. Yeah, I, was, I wonder if Sean will have something to say on this. Yeah. I was saying that, that um, I, I get, I, I've sort of fed up with hearing post-game a situation, you know, that sort of drip-fed conversation when the, they say, oh, so-and-so thought didn't get the tactics right or this wasn't right, that I've gone to half times now where I'll present a couple of scenarios, whether it's to change a press, whether it's to 
exploit a certain area and I'll say we can either do this or we do that which one but we agree yeah, similar but different um, at Burnley over my time obviously I've built a lot of trust with the players a two way trust that is and a couple of players referenced their surprise I ask them half time what do you think and it, and it never ceases to amaze you or surprise you actually they often know the answer and then I always yeah. well, I'll take away the expletives but I say well why didn't you change it then because you've just given me the right answers you know what's going on so why don't mm. you change it while you're active so Similar but different. Back to the day for me, I think it's always refreshing that there's a little bit of empathy because sometimes you get to these meetings and you think, is it only me experiencing all these things? And then you realise across all these different sports um, and, and, and some top people here, they're all experiencing a lot of the challenges that I experience as a manager. Um, so there's a little bit of empathy and understanding. Um, some depth and more depth than, than stuff that you obviously probably share with your staff but then other sports it's always interesting to know they're you know they're reflecting on it and I'm just reference there just new twists and ideas and because I never think I don't think you're ever coming to these to, to get the the breakthrough moment I think it's lots of mini breakthroughs and lots of things that you can add into your your toolbox to go and use in your own environment you know whatever that environment may be whatever sport whatever walk of life you're in I think that's what I always think I think how many things can I nick mm. add into my toolbox to use in the future I thought it was an interesting discussion that we, we just had, or you guys just had, in there. Andy Coulson uh, was talking about crisis management, how to manage the media. Um, and it seemed that you two had two quite different experiences, or maybe even different views, on this growing trend for access all areas, um, documentary style things that are happening. Emma, you with the Chelsea women's team, I believe you're halfway through uh, a production process for that at the moment. Sean, it's not happening at Burnley, not yet, anyway. And We're not trendy enough. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, but that's exactly why Do you know what? I think the difference is we are a relatively new sport. It's banned for 50 years, women's football. So at the inception of social media, for example, was the start of the professionalism, per se, of the women's game. So those platforms, that broad range of platforms, women's football has utilised to grow the sport. So our engagement and interactions with that has been different, that's the first thing. Two, money's not been in the women's game. So we haven't had, until now, all access into our lives or the back pages, etc. So our relationship with the media is different. And I often have this conversation internally at Chelsea, Women aren't stumbling out of the back of nightclubs necessarily or caught in, so they might be doing other things but they're not doing that and they're not on the back pages. So I think our dynamic with the media is different. No, I, I think that's right. I think uh, Emma's always open and honest with her views and I think she's spot on because it, it's opening. I'd certainly watch it because I'd like to see where the women's game's at. You know, wh where do I think it's at from the outside but where is it really at? Mm. How are they working? How are they working inside the group? What are their training shows like? What is their backup support, scientific support? How professional or professionalised has it become and it continues to become? Mm. If you come into my world, you're probably going to see a lot of what you would expect as a fan. You would expect a certain level of professionalism, a certain level of support, whether it be sports science, whether it be medical. So I think, therefore, the difference would be, for me anyway, thinking about it, would you end up looking for the quirks and the, the stories and the bits and the, the rows. And, whereas with Emma's documentary, I hope and I presume, I'll be looking for the, the more, more depth to it, more the content of what they're doing. Yep. So I think that would be my view of it. Um, and that's why probably... I'm probably more cynical of coming into our world because a lot of it would be quite normalised and therefore probably the documentary makers would be looking for just a little twist on things. But for you guys as managers, as coaches, presumably you've got two, if, if, that, if that's going to happen, you've got two things to sort of concern yourselves with. First of all, how much control am I going to have over this process and what do I need to be wary of? Presumably, second of all, how am I going to use this to my advantage for my overall objectives, which are winning? Yeah, I think that's the key thing, because you've got to remember that you've got a group there as well. Yeah. So the documentary would start with the manager or head coach, whichever you choose, and then it builds from there, usually. Yeah. Well, therefore, that, that was a knock-on effect to your staff, to your players, the environment, the culture. All the things you might have stood for can be questioned just for having a camera there. Mm. It's almost like, well, this is in-house, this is private stuff to us, this is what we do. This is our domain, this is stripping off the ego, this is us being real. Well, of course, when it comes there, that can often change, and it can change the view of that. So I think that's probably my view why I'd be wary, 
Um, and as you rightly mentioned, the, the, the control of it is, is absolutely paramount. But, but Emma's, I'm sure she'll explain now, but she has got control of that. Yeah, I think the bottom line is probably I won't know until it's released. So I can sit here and say I'm basing something on trust with an organisation I've never worked with before. Um, but if I approach it with the other side, then I think I'll just spend my days being tense all of the time. So my perspective is it's here, can't do anything about it, but I'm going to work with it or work within it to make sure that I influence the right moments, i.e. being able to speak to the producer to say, look, you being in on that situation, for example, in tight dressing rooms away from home, it's not that we don't want you, it's too small, we're not in there, get out. You know, like to, to have honest conversations with that, to be able to say, I'm not letting you film in this private conversation with a player, yeah. for example, because I'm talking about potentially a recruit or another player, and that for me is somewhere I'm not going to go, and you'll have a bit of kickback in both um, directions. I think we've probably, we would have provided more access than other football docu-series in as much as I'm experimenting to see with that access, are we able to drive the messages that we want, knowing that we will be ex there'll be some exposure that we won't agree with or won't enjoy seeing, but ultimately I, I'm trying to grow a sport that is on the cusp of becoming something big and I hope that this can be you know behind that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and I guess an extension of that discussion about documentary is something that uh, was touched on in there and Sean you had a question who among that room a room full of sort of sporting directors managers head coaches is active on social media Emma um, you are or at least were yeah. That's that's a rare thing, isn't it, in, in your world? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't engage with it that well. Yeah. I do it to sort of say well done to the fans or thanks for coming yeah. every now and then. But, um, it, and in, our, in my line of work, it's been useful for recruitment because we, we haven't had the video and the scouting networks that will be there in the men's game, you can often develop a network of people that are watching the games in different countries that provide insight. I suspect as my own profile keeps growing, I will have to reflect upon that and how I interact with it. But generally I use it for news more than interacting with it in terms of talking with it. So as a, as a you receive, you, you know, yeah. you use it to filter news and get a sense of what's going on. About players yeah. predominantly. Right. In social media, in my world, I've said many times, there was a story a few years ago that was like I was anti-social media. It's, it's absolutely incorrect. It's just, I don't need it. Yeah. So therefore, if I felt I needed it, and I probably will do soon because my, my kids are getting older. Yeah. They'll want me on social media, of some version of it. Of yeah. course, other than the obvious stuff like WhatsApp, tech, uh, text messages, stuff like yeah. that. Um, so there'll probably come a time privately. If I needed it for what I thought was important within the role uh, and the job that I do, then I'd definitely use it. I just don't feel that the need for it at the moment. Yeah. Um, Let's move towards the end because it's cold and noisy outside uh, <laughs> and there's something going on inside quite soon, I think. Both of you have been in your roles for, I think in football terms, relatively long uh, periods. Almost the same. Uh, almost yeah. the same, yeah, exactly. And Sean, you're the second longest tenured uh, mm -hmm. manager in English Premier League football, which I think is, I would congratulate you, but I think it's a poison chalice probably. Yeah, it's a bizarre situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, as you progress through your careers and as, uh, as your objectives have changed, I guess, with your uh, respective clubs, what, I mean, what, are you, what are your objectives now? What are you looking at for this season and how do you... Dave Browsford always talks about change, change all the time. You've got to be changing for change's sake, basically. What are you changing this year and how are your objectives? I think, I think for, for myself and our, our team, I think, you know, the... the, the trying to build on a tough season last season a very good from a management coaching point of view a very actually a very good season actually probably my most successful it wouldn't be deemed that from the outside world but from management and inside very successful but performance wise how we can build on the second half of last season compared to the first how we can move that forward we can't always move it forward with finance so therefore we've got to keep the team active keep them refreshed and keep bringing that that kind of them, them soft but important differences 
that make a team operate in a better manner. So I think continuing along them lines, whether it's through, well, through all, of, all the areas, you know, the key areas of what we do, really. You know, it's, you know, technical, tactical, physical, psychological, social, you know, them, them ideas of, of, of ticking all their boxes, but they're not just ticking them, refreshing them and bringing newness to them to therefore enhance the group. And I think we continue to do that. And like I say, not overwhelm players with it, but just give them more knowledge, more about themselves, more about ourselves, and try and keep moving it forward. It's funny, listening to you talk about last year being a massive success. We didn't win a trophy last year, but I gave birth. Mm. It's my best Massive trophy. success. And didn't start the season well and couldn't recover it, but from a position of disappointment, I really enjoyed the season, even though there wasn't a trophy at the end of it. And I think going into this year, I kept saying to myself, what I cannot do is make this season about last year's in terms of where we went wrong, where we failed. And we beat Arsenal with about October, about five games in, and I thought, oh, now the season's begun because I'm no longer going to be asked that last year. I got fed up of, oh, you know, you drew a lot, you did a slow start, and I thought, you know, it could be a long season when it doesn't go well at the beginning, as we both know. Yeah, absolutely. But the recoveries are never, never noticed in the same way, and that recovery, when you're in a position where most people can't see, now are you going to get out of this? I've took as, as much enjoyment as I have this year finding the tiny little gains in what was a draw last year into a win and just if you've got the right group if you've got the right togetherness if you've got the right culture and in, our, in both our position been there long enough where you have the relationships you can achieve absolutely anything with your teams and I'm just to be honest with you I'm really really enjoying this season and finally, now that the tractor's gone in and we've mm -hmm. got a nice bit of quiet, we can uh, bring this podcast to a close. So, Thanks. Uh, one final question, and I think I know the response from you, Emma. What is keeping you both up at night? <laughs> An ear infection for my son. Right. <laughs> yep. That's definitely keeping me up. No, to be honest, not much. Not much keeps me up. I just get on with it, work hard. Put me out on the pillow, I'm pretty secure in that. Work hard, sleep hard. I'm okay. Way. <laughs> yeah, Perfect. something like that. I'm Thank sorry, you very yes. much, Beth. Cheers. Kurt Vallis, thank you very much for being with us. My I, pleasure. I appreciate your time. Um, you haven't quite just come off stage. I imagine your adrenaline is now down. Yeah, I had, I've had the dip. You've had the, the dip. The, the, yeah. the immediate dip, and now I'm sort of re-energised, coffee in hand. Good. Yeah, enjoying the nice um, feedback. So, you, so you've been on stage with us today at the Leaders Sport Performance Summit. You had the coveted post-lunch spot. A one-man show after uh, lunch, which is one of the most difficult things you can do. You brought a lot of energy to it, talking about creativity and how having a creative mindset is very important um, in sporting environments. That's right. In I, any environment. In any environment. I want to uh, unpack your job title, if, I, right, if I may. Yeah. Uh, Global Head of Creative Capability Development at Google. What does that mean? So answers on the back of a postcode card for a better one is always is, is the first thing. We can call ourselves, you do have license to kind of name yourself whatever you like at, um, at Google, so that helps. Yeah. Um, but it's, the, the, it's, its attempt is to, firstly, I work in capability development. I, I, build, at, I work in at Google. learning and <laughs> development. That's yeah. my job is to build the, yeah. uh, the capabilities of, of Googlers. Um, and my specific area is creativity and problem-solving skills. Innovation, creativity, problem-solving skills. I kind of dialed down the innovation bit on purpose because um, there is tons of people doing the innovation space at Google and beyond. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is quite framework and process-driven, mm -hmm. which is great, not a problem. But I think the key to it working is how people behave, how people show up and the mindset stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's that. Um, the... the, the the, the simple answer for the long title is, if I just said head of creativity, you could argue that the founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, would probably hold that coveted position. <laughs> You're helping people uh, and systems to be more creative. Exactly, which is right. lovely. I wish I had that answer at dinner parties of the past where people <laughs> gaze over as I try and explain what I do. Um, how long have you been doing that? And, uh, how, and how does one get to that kind of position? Well, so I've been doing it for eight years and, uh, and it's the jo only job I've had at Google. Right. So which 
which is quite rare for Google as well because everyone inward mobility and people change it. But actually, I made a call early on that I went, no, this is my thing. I don't just want to be known for being at Google. I want to be known for, I, I, I think my area of specialism and so on is what excites me and that's what I want to be known for. So, so that's the kind of conscious decision to only have that job. So I used to be a leader in business in the commercial world, 14 years in radio and TV I uh, worked for Sky for a number of years, brilliant job, etc. But I kind of always was like, I, I just loved the, the importance of human performance in driving brilliant stuff. So technology was getting, you know, has just slowly been given more credit for everything that happens. Yeah. Technology, but humans innovate, not, not technology. Technology is the best tool we've ever had to innovate with. But it's, the, it's, it's still just a tool. It's how the people use that tool that piece of equipment that data to do things differently so I had the opportunity to join a company called what if who are an innovation consultants and partners recently been bought by Accenture and there it was my job to partner with organizations to help build a more creative and innovative culture from within and actually Google's one of my clients so long story short they probably thought it was cheaper to have someone on the payroll than pay a consultant's mm -hmm. fee basic question why is it important for any organization to value creativity, having room for creativity and creative mindsets within their employee base? Oh, uh, because it's the only thing for me that creates a competitive advantage. Everything else is commoditized, right? Knowledge, technical expertise. You've got prisoners in Mexico being s sold out for their ability to code now and so on. It's like a global technology and automation and a global workforce has meant that Binary skills like output-driven tasks, how productive can you be, how fast can you be, or just binary knowledge, here's the one right answer, that has just become commoditized. Mm -hmm. and, and great, and we should make the most of that. But if we, especially in parts of the world where, where I live and where many of us live that are more developed and therefore we need to be able to offer more value than just, um, uh, than just binary output, then, um, then our ability to think differently is what's, is what's key. Competitive advantage comes from the imagination of how you use all the brilliant stuff in the world. Um, there was a quote I used um, in my presentation today um, from Kevin Kelly, who founded Wired. Uh, the world isn't lacking in knowledge or technology, it's lacking in the imagination of what to do with it. I think that says it all. Mm -hmm. um, technology companies, and Google in particular, um, you alluded to it earlier, are, are now almost fetishized for their um, internal creativity, the types of people that they attract, that they want to um, uh, foster within the, yeah. the environments that they create in the culture. Um, what is it, do you think, having been at Google now for eight years and having been involved intimately in building this, yeah. what is it that makes Google such a creative place? So, uh, thoughts and opinions all owned by Kurt Vallis, not, not representing Google. So yes, let's, good, uh, let's good be caveat, clear, good clear, caveat. Clear on that. Yeah. Um, um, so, there's a lovely expression that I hear around Google, which is, which we, is a reference to every colleague, Googler, um, which is smart creatives. So, what that means is, yes, as a base ingredient, we want people that know stuff and know a lot of stuff and particularly know a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff, which is why we love people that have got that generalist you know there's, there's been some great books out there about sort of the debate between sort of deep technical expertise and specialism or generalism um i think matthew say is going to talk a little bit about that to, um, uh, tomorrow and um, um so so we go as a core ingredient the, the metaphor i use or analogy i can't work out which is the most appropriate term um is if you think about baking a cake right so the more ingredients you've got in the larder or pantry the, the, the more scope you've got to, to change a recipe and make a different type of uh, type of cake. So, so that's the thing. Raw ingredients of knowledge and experience is brilliant. I'm not saying it's bad at all. However, unless you are practiced and prepared to make fresh connections between us, that new recipes, you've got, um, you, you, add, you offer no more value. Then we might as well not try and find you because we can employ someone with less knowledge because if, if you're not making fresh connections between that knowledge anyway, yeah. then you, you're not adding value. So that's the thing that I think, if, if I had to say, well, in my opinion, what's one, the one special source to, uh, to Google or to companies with that mindset mm. is just this, 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 um, this mix of, yes, we want people with expertise, mm -hmm. but we need to give them the, the confidence, the, the capability, my job, there you go, number keeping me in, 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 in work, and, but also create the conditions where they can look at things differently. 
Um, with that analogy, the cake analogy, you've got a load of... Analogy was the right term. I think it's an analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good. Um, You've got a load of ingredients in your larder, if you've got a larder. (laughs) That sounds very old um, English. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) And um, someone's taught you how to make a cake with uh, four of these ingredients, and that's just what you do. But the creative mindset, the creative person sees all those ingredients, makes connections between them, might make something brilliant that hasn't been thought of, like an amazing fairy dust cake or something. But a lot of people would be very daunted by that prospect. Like, make you know how to make this cake with these four ingredients, but go on, just do what do you want. Like. I think a lot of people would be scared to make a disgusting cake, yeah, like a really foul cake with those ingredients. And how <laughs> do you, people who who don't believe that their job is inherently creative, how do you give them the courage to be creative? Yeah, so um, we have to be careful we don't stretch this metaphor to the point. I like of, the cake metaphor. Being, right, we're, stre- we're stretching. Good, okay, yeah. we'll go with it then. Um, so, we're first, so we don't make the new, don't experiment with the new cake on Sunday lunch when you've got the in laws round. Uh-huh, right? yeah. So, that would be the, the first thing is right there. How do you create the, yeah. s- the space? where the experimentation can happen and failure is allowed. I, the, I cake, to, the cake lab. Right, well, there yeah, you go. Yeah. The, the cake lab or cake Tuesdays. The, you know, is, is, is it that day as far away from it needing to be perfect where you can try something um, different? Now, corporate organisations um, are pretty good at creating innovation labs. And Google's no different, right? We, you know, a lab that is given the time and the space to, to fail vast majority of the time. Um, but that's the sort of corner marked creativity right. that happens in there. You and, know. and that's the point. You're, 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 you're right. How, so, but I think everybody needs to have a bit more of a mindset inside themselves of going, where's my disruption lab live in my world? And I used to ask, I used to, whenever I spoke at conferences, I used to ask a question of leaders and say, where does failure live in your world? And actually failure is a bit defeated because it doesn't have to fail. And, and sometimes you'll be surprised. But we have to be open to the risk of it failing. Is the is the point, and I think that's the that's what's important. So if people are thinking about you know, daunted by the thought of stuff not working, well, firstly we have to change our mindset of our relationship between success and failure. We need to we need to be able to ask ourselves, how have I fa- what have I tried that's failed? But the key is how do we fail really quickly and cheaply in safe to fail um, uh, uh, situations, and we have to force that on ourselves. So, like I say, you know, if it's competitive edge of sport. An elite performance. Well, you, you're probably limited to how much you want to try totally different and new on match day mm. or performance day. But but where is that point and where you can try stuff? You know, mm. that's far away from that. And I think whether you're in the corporate world, the business world, the, the, or just personally, it's like where is my day, my space, my environment? I'm doing two fingers in the air. And we're on a podcast. Mm. Say. Um, we um, uh, but where is that space inside myself where I can try new stuff and experiment? Thinking specifically about sport, and obviously we're here at a sports um, a summit, and I know that you um, speak to lots of sports clients, I guess, you know, you, you've got a, a fair bit of exposure to the type of thinking and the type of practices that go on in this industry, in this world. I think there's a weird um, uh, dichotomy right. going on, where in sport, ultra-creativity is highly, highly valued in terms of, so if, if you take football, the number 10 position, yeah, Lionel right. Messi, just sort of miraculous, God-given creativity and stuff that you, I mean, immortal, wouldn't be able to think of, let alone try to yeah. undertake. That's highly, highly valued. Yet, on the other side of that, all the systems and the, the ever-increasing professionalization kind of dampen that down, make it really difficult for that to thrive. Do you agree with that kind of assessment from what you've seen and, and what's your overall view on how sport nurtures creativity? So I do I do agree that there is a huge conflict in the home of that word and I think that's probably half the, 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 the challenge is if you say the word creativity, it's really loaded. We've all had a different relationship in our lives, you know, in our upbringing at school, you know, don't do art, you're not creative, um, etc. So even that, ba- that baggage, there's not many words that have affected so so many of us so deeply whether it's consciously done so or not as we enter adulthood whatever our profession is so that's the first thing so first thing to answer that question if you if you wanted a a club or an organization to ask that question answer that question 
you would have to first ask, well, what does creativity mean in this in this place? Mm -hmm. And we probably need to build, be a bit more deliberate about the the um, uh, how, how we're aligning around that language. I do what I believe is, of course, that there are you know the messes of the world are are more creative than than others. However, I I think the thing that makes someone like him or uh, another athlete, even if it's a you know, uh, an individual athlete, you know, Shanae Milawebo, Olympic 400 metre champion, what makes her so brilliant, her ability to dictate races in different ways, etc. I think it's not actually as God given the, the ability to do the flash pass or to, or to structure a, a race in a different way or something like that. It's actually the ability to very quickly create options and then make a decision based on those options. So if you ask me what is it about these, these, flair, these flair talent in different worlds, it, that is the definition of creativity that I, I would use is ability to very quickly create one or, one or two options even if it's only one more option mm -hmm. that's 100% more options yeah. I like those numbers yeah, yeah. Um, and then make a decision on it and, um, so, and, and then if you go with that mentality I'd like to think that that's a lot easier to then translate into the culture of the wider organisation what's our relationship with creating more options and and make and then making better decisions mm. and and it also what what I the reason why I promote that way of thinking about it is it actually gives credit to the ability to analyze judge and make some decisions as well mm. so creativity isn't just so Lionel Messi isn't brilliant because he tries loads of new things no. all the time he's brilliant because he tries stuff and it often works that's a bit different. So his ability to make the decision as to what's the most appropriate thing that's going to have the, the likelihood of payoff and success in that context, actually, I think that's the stuff that people don't really yeah. think about with creativity. I think there's something there as well in, it's not necessarily creativity, it's useful to think of creativity always with the framework that makes creativity work. In, in whatever context what, yeah. so, so in that instance of it's not really about being creative it's about coming up with an extra option and then quickly choosing between it you're not being creative you're just working out here's the framework with, within which this very small bit of creativity can work right and, and when I work with engineers so, and I'm generalising a little bit here but when I work with like my tech colleagues and engineer colleagues at, at Google um, sometimes that word creativity doesn't land with them right so we have to be careful about that yeah. word and I don't care about the word right I care about what sits behind it. So um, if we never use the word creativity, but we talk about problem-solving skills, then happy days, yeah. and it's the same thing. Yeah. So I think, actually, if there's people wanting to go, okay, I think there's something in what these two are saying on this on this podcast. Probably not. Doesn't make yeah. you right. <laughs> yeah, 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 so about cakes. I'm sorry. And uh, um, then what is it that they... But, but I'm not 100% comfortable with the language that's being used and don't be wedded to the language, wedded to the, this principle of the, a framework, a thinking framework, if you like, of can I create an option or two more than what my autopilot brain is feeding me um, because it'll always feed you something, but it'll be based on how it was done before. Yeah. So if I can create an option or two more, do I feel more confident about making a better decision? And by the way, even if that decision is your autopilot one that was first created by your brain, then, it, then you can only be more confident with it because you've put it through the rigour of choice. Final question, and I appreciate your time. Um, you're thinking about this, talking about this, enacting this, um, being confident about this uh, all the time as a, a job, I presume, in your personal life as well. Um, although perhaps that's a presumption. Well, that, no, you know, well, I, I would say my fiancé <laughs> always just says... Why don't you do more of this positivity it, well, and stuff yeah, at, at home? Moaning, because I'm just like, oh, I just need to switch up. So we all have our, we all have yeah. our pitfalls. Um, what one thing have you done recently that has made a tangible difference to you in terms of being able to think differently or enhancing your own creativity, the way you go about your, your daily business? So we didn't talk about it loads today. I touched on it very briefly. But um, just allowing more deliberate thinking time guilt-free right so and I said use that word those words guilt-free because that's the barrier to us all is it's our own guilt our own perception of of what good looks like at work whether that's presenteeism or if I'm typing on a keyboard and I'm producing decks and analysis or whatever I'm I'm adding value um, actually so reframing that and and deliberately allowing yourself just the space to gestate 
and, and just let's. And what does that look like for you? You you sit somewhere quiet and no, well, ponder. It, potentially, um, it's more about planning the space. So, for example, so I didn't finalise my slides for today until this morning. So that is a get it done. I remember task I disturbed you this morning for, as you were for, doing for, that. For, yeah. for me, that's um, so that was a get it done task for me. That's a reductive task that requires focus and decisions, but. Uh, but I'm comfortable with that. And of course, you have to build that. I've built a practice where I'm not burdened by the pressure of going, oh my God, I've got three hours until I need to go on. I have spent, though, the last six weeks thinking about this. At times, deliberately. So at times, just going, I'm going to give myself an hour. I'm going to go for a walk, um, pushing Elliot around the park, and I'm, uh, that's my son, not my dog. And deliberately going, right, what, how can that play out? and kicking that around in my head. At times I've had coffees with people that I trust and respect from different worlds and I might say to them, what do you think I should do? So, you know, I spent some time with David Court at the FA a couple of weeks ago and I said to him, I said, what do do you think would resonate in that context? So getting perspective and then, but then also trusting the science of the brain that says if I've planted something in my conscious, even though I forget about it, my subconscious will keep working on it, which is why we have those brilliant ideas at the moments we least expect. So I trust the science of, what, what, uh, of why that happens. And the more opportunities I can give my brain to do that, the more likely I, heard I am to get good stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and I would say there's loads of stuff I don't do well when it comes to creativity, skills and practice. But I would say that has had a game-changing effect on how I think about um, uh, my circadian rhythm, my flow, my body clock, everything. So build in guilt-free deliberate thinking time that is the short answer to the uh, to the to the as opposed to the long answer i go <laughs> kirk bellis thank you very much you're indeed. welcome thanks for having me claire moran murphy thank you very much for being with me today on the leaders sport performance podcast um you have literally just got off stage delivering a masterclass, i would say in uh storytelling why it's important how to do it properly Am I right? Is that resonating with your lived experience? Thank you, James. Thank you. I had a really good time on stage. I don't know if you can deliver a masterclass in 35 minutes. Mm. Masterclasses take longer. An introduction too. But it was a very fun, pleasurable 35 minutes with an amazing group of people. Mm-hmm. That's how it felt. Let's, uh, I've got three areas that I'd like to cover with you. But first of all, the preliminaries. Let's get into who you are. We've got you down. Job title, internationally renowned storyteller. Um... What is that? What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> what is an internationally renowned storyteller? I know. What mm. is it? It's such a strange thing. I get asked this a lot. Mm. So I uh, travel the world and I tell stories. Mm-hmm. I just tell stories. It's, it's hard. So what people usually say, is that your job? It is my job. It's my only job. I don't have another job. I don't have a real job. I get paid to tell stories. So it could be at a university or at a festival or at an event or at a conference it could be at the bottom of a volcano or on a beach. It really depends on the context. But I've told stories in, I don't know, 22 countries, mostly in English, sometimes in Spanish. Uh, I tell stories that are anything from 5,000 years old to now. I tell true stories. I tell traditional folklore, myths, fables, legends, anecdotes. So it's the original meaning of the word storyteller, because storyteller is used a lot nowadays, isn't it? So I travel the world and tell stories is the easiest way to put it. Very good. You also tell people in increasing numbers, I guess, on uh, about why stories are important and how to do them effectively, as you have just done today. You mention it there. Um, the word storytelling, at least, is becoming more and more popular in lots of different contexts. Obviously, everyone is familiar with uh, the fundamentals of what a story is and storytelling. As you said earlier, it's hardwired into all of us as humans. But in recent years, I guess it's this concept has moved into the corporate world, it's moved into the sporting world, this idea that you become a more powerful communicator if you are telling a story, not just giving uh, information or data or a lesson or, yeah. or whatever. Why, in your view, is storytelling, being deliberately, consciously a storyteller when you're imparting information, why is that so powerful? Human beings have been listening to stories and telling stories for 100,000 years. So in and of itself, that is powerful. 
when we sit and listen to a story, what we do as a listener is we, we're not forced to, but we're invited to go on this journey, especially if the story is good and the storyteller is good. And we start walking in the shoes of the characters, we can't help it. We start imagining, well, if that was me, what would I do? So your empathy is activated. You're engaging so many parts of your brain and you're sucked in, you're sucked into another world, you're traveling, it's the cheapest form of time and space travel. So you can go somewhere without ever leaving your chair. You will forget the room around you. So great stories can allow us to travel to other places, so we're addicted to it, because inside of stories is a sense of wonder. And you activate the cinema of the mind, you activate the imagination of your listeners. And for adults, a lot of adults haven't, that, that imagination hasn't been activated or they're not using it enough at work. So when you hear a really good story, suddenly your brain feels really alive. You're more alive. And that's really addictive. And when you listen to a story, oxytocin is released in the brain, which activates empathy, which makes us care. So if the storyteller sees it, we see it. If we see it, we care. If we care, we remember. If we remember, we carry the story with us. And in terms of sports, if you want somebody to be a fan, if you want someone to be a, 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 someone to fund or believe or invest in your team or your sport, or your nation, you get them to buy in to the story of it because stats and numbers and philosophies aren't enough. At least they, they're great and they're essential and knowledge and science and all of that is very important. But the story gives us the why, why we care. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, stories can be used for bad and they can be used for good. And we're actually living in a time of toxic storytelling. There's a great writer called Ben Oakley who says that uh, toxic, I'm paraphrasing, but he said toxic stories, sick stories can make a nation sick. Mm -hmm. a, so, a nation is only as healthy as its storytellers. And so when we look in the political sphere and the economic sphere, there's a lot of really toxic, panic-driven stories being told. You know, you look in places like sports or, you know, working with the veterans, you look at stories of resilience, overcoming great odds. You're looking at, you know, incredible teamwork that happens. You're looking at people pulling themselves from one division to the top of the top division. And those stories transmit these feelings to us, the feelings that we want of wonder and hope and belief and inspiration. So it's addictive. And if you're not using story, then you're missing a trick. Mm -hmm. um, people here in the audience that you just talked to, people uh, who'd be listening to this podcast, members of the Leaders Performance Institute, largely working for sports organizations, largely I would say in coaching or educative roles um, somehow and, and hopefully people who would appreciate the power of a story. What hints or, or tips would you have for them um, when they're trying to deliver lessons, information, uh, coaching advice? How can they frame um, those uh, interventions more in the form of stories? So there's two things there, there's, there's how they tell the story, the technique, and then there's the stories that they tell. And one thing about technique is variety. So we all know the word monotone, and we all know what that means, but actually, monorhythm, monopitch, monocadence, you need variety, you need variety in your emotional states. If you deliver everything like this, everything is really intense all the time, you gotta get out there, you gotta drink some water, and after you drink the water, you gotta get out there and you gotta do that killer play, that killer play that we practice. Well then drinking the water and the killer play have the same emotional intensity. So if you front load everything with this panic and excitement, then if everything's exciting, nothing's exciting. So your, um, your vocal play is incredibly important in terms of how you deliver the story and where you put the impact and importance in the story. And then what stories you choose to tell. We don't necessarily need to tell sports stories to get across ideas of resilience or strength or overcoming adversity. But you also have to be authentic to who you are. So finding the stories that work for you as a coach, don't try to be something you're not, be authentic, because we, we know when you're not being authentic. And so there's a bit of work involved. I think people maybe underestimate what it takes to be good at telling stories. So I'm a storyteller, that's my role. But in the sports world, what I would encourage people to do is to tell more stories. And the, and the first thing to do is, is to practice them. And you might not want to practice them at work. So try them out on your family and friends. Okay, I've just heard this amazing story about this athlete who came out of poverty and went on to be the captain of the South African rugby team. Let me, let me, let me try and tell you his life story in five minutes. Let me tell you what I, what I think is important. And then watch how that story lands. And I know you're using your friends or your husband or your wife or whatever, but practice it. Practice it so you can hit the beats of the story so that it has greater impact. Because one of the things that lots of people do 
is they say too much. Mm. And I think it's probably tempting for people who aren't necessarily used to telling stories to frame their stories in maybe not a helpful way in terms of I'm going to tell you a funny story now to here's the story wasn't isn't that funny not not advised on your yeah own. don't t- never tell your audience what to feel right and never t- actually I'd be a big fan of never telling your audience what to take from your story hmm. your story's good enough they're gonna get the moral that's in there mm-hmm. but yeah don't tell them it's gonna be funny don't tell them it's going to be amazing. Don't tell them it's going to be unforgettable. And also, don't apologise or defend your story. Mm. You don't need to set it up. You just start. There was a woman in the middle of giving birth. Well, there, there you go. We're in the middle of the story, in the middle of the scene. If you get more, if you get stronger as a speaker, you will trust yourself enough to plant us in the middle of the story and you don't need to explain, defend or line it up. How do you collect, refine and keep stories yourself? Mm. Uh, what do you do? I presume you are constantly collecting uh, things that have happened and um, embellishments that you could add to them to make them into a story? Well, it depends because I work in different sectors. Mm. So for my performance work, I'm collecting myths, fables, folk tales. Think, things that are already out And those are, those are traditional materials. And, and I do change them and I do work with them. So I'm constantly reading. But I'm also looking in the newspaper for those real life stories that reflect those things back. So I sort of have my, I have my story radar on all the time, but I keep a book and then if I find something really good that I just love, uh, I'll read it several times, then I'll write out the bones, and the bones will be really powered down. You know, um, uh, there's a boy born in poverty, he ended up starting to play rugby, he worked really hard, and uh, he became captain of the South African rugby team, and now he's inspiring uh, people in all sorts of villages to play rugby. There, five bones, his story. Of course there's more to say. But I write those bones down and then I might, and as I said to you a few minutes ago, I'll just try it out on people that I'm in conversation with. What do you think of this? And I'll watch the impact. And I'll often just test out. When I have the pleasure of hanging out with other performers and storytellers, I will rehearse with them. But a lot of the time I have to rehearse on my own. So I will just try it out on the, on the smart and emotional intelligent people in my life and watch them react. And uh, sometimes I think a story is great and it's not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I think the impact moment is here, mm-hmm. four minutes in, but it's not actually. It's at the seventh minute when this other thing happens. So you have to pay attention to the beats and the rhythm and the harmony inside a story. So it's, it's, it's yes. Am I constantly doing it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because I always want new stories. I always want to refresh my repertoire. Um, because if I am bored by a story, my audience will be bored by it. So you should never tell a story you don't care about. Mm-hmm. Even if it's your go-to story, because if you stop caring, we'll know it by the way your voice will act. Outside of the um, realm of performance storytelling and outside of the traditional realm of stories, so you know, art, theatre, TV, film, books, that kind of thing, what story in your head that someone else has told has really resonated with you somehow, has smuggled some kind of message through that you can think of now, and I'm asking this quite slowly to give you time to think about it. So, uh, my my fella, my boyfriend, told me a story recently. He really likes MMA, mm. and I really I like MMA for the same reason I like rugby. I'm I'm so impressed by the the sheer physical resilience. You like people these. hurting each other. Well, I mean, that's one way to put it. Mm. Uh, you've got to admire the warriors. You've got to admire the warriors, and you've got to admire people that put their bodies on the line and are so driven and passionate. Yeah. So it's not really the sadomasochistic aspect, you know. But he was telling me about uh, Jorge Masvidal, who's this fighter in MMA. I haven't seen him fight yet, but I'm already wanting to see him. So he was not a very well-known... You know, he, what happened was, whenever he was doing interviews, he never really said much. And his coach told him to go on a reality TV show in his home country. And I apologise now that I don't know if it was Brazil or where it was. He didn't want to do it. And he did it, but this reality TV show meant that he had uh, no internet, no phone, no contact with his family. He was completely removed for nine weeks from his life. And he said it was incredible because he had a lot of time to think. And he thought about his story and he thought about him as a fighter. He had nine weeks to deeply reflect, which is not something any of us have anymore, right? He came out of that. And he started telling this new story. He started calling himself Street Jesus. And now he is Street Jesus and he's offering to baptise people on the streets. And he has taken the MMA world by storm because suddenly he is really clear about who he is and what he wants to do. And this, for me, there's some real medicine in that. So stories carry medicine. And there's that 
I mean, I know what I, I'd be curious to see what you take out of it because I've had it for a couple of days. So I've been percolating on it. I think there's a lot in there. Um, what do you, what's, what would be the first thing that strikes you about that? The sweet Jesus story. Yeah, uh, st- street Jesus, not sweet Jesus. The street Jesus story. Yeah. I'm innately distrustful of religion. Um, so. Oh, he's not starting a religion. Right. It's just going to be his fighter name, Street Jesus. Because um, it kind of looks like I it. like it. Uh, I like the... I like nicknames. I think nicknames do a lot to... A lot of work on building a story without you having to do anything. And in yes. wrestling, often... In fighting sports, mm. often they'll have kind of monikers that stick with them. Um, that it's are true, mainly it? designed to power of a name scare the opposition naming's really powerful in, in, in everything mm. in story and in sport I'm going to finish there Claire Mwirin Murphy thank you very much indeed you're very welcome James Emmett James Emmett